This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical contexts here on London's best and brightest radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and this week I'm joined by American author Andrea Lawler to discuss their debut novel, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl, and the position of trans and non-binary literature more widely, five years since Time magazine memorably declared that we had reached a transgender tipping point in terms of civil rights and cultural representation, in the West at least. Andrea Lawler teaches writing at Mount Holyoke College, edits fiction for Fence magazine, and has been awarded fellowships by Lambda Literary and Radar Labs. Their writing has appeared in various literary journals, including Plowshares, Mother, The Millions, Jubilat, The Brooklyn Rail, Faggot Dinosaur, and Encyclopedia Volume 2. Their publications include a chapbook, Position Papers, published by Factory Hollow Press in 2016, and a novel, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl, a 2018 finalist for the Lambda Literary and CLMP Firecracker Awards. Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl was originally published by Rescue Press in 2017. It has recently been reissued in the US by Vintage and Knopf and published in the UK for the first time by Picador. So Andrea, welcome to Suite 212. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. No, it's a, it's a pleasure to um, to have you. This is this is a subject matter that I am I'm very interested in. I mean, I'm interested both in in your book and in the position of trans and non-binary literature more widely. Um, it's a topic that I have obviously covered a lot in my own writing, and um, interested listeners might 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 be intrigued to hear that I actually have the viva for my PhD at the end of this week. Um, at the University of Sussex, where I have been writing a collection of um, historical short stories covering the history of trans people and trans and non-binary people in Britain uh, from the Victorian period to the present, and I've also written a thirty thousand word critical essay about the the way trans and non-binary writers have moved through kind of memoir and theory, and why there is suddenly more more people writing fiction and poetry although I cover that to a lesser extent so I'm going to attempt to sort of you know bring some of that work into into our conversation today but I want to start the conversation by focusing on um on your on your debut novel so perhaps you'd like to um tell our listeners uh, what the novel is about um a bit about the process of writing it and and maybe read read a section of it oh that's that's great yeah um the novel is a coming-of-age story about a young queer shapeshifter named Paul in uh, set in the early 90s in the U.S. Um, it's a picaresque story in many ways. It's episodic and, and follows Paul from Iowa City to various adventures in Chicago, the Michigan Women's Music Festival, uh, Provincetown, ultimately San Francisco. So uh, a sort of tour of queer... Um, queer 90s U.S. scenes. And it's a it's a book that um, I started um, 
the very first piece of it I started in a writing workshop with Dodie Bellamy in San Francisco in in probably 2003. And so I was I was writing about um, a time that was the recent past. And over the course of about, you know, the 15 years it took me to finish the book, I was not writing straight through by any stretch. Um, but over the course of those years, one of the things that happened is it became historical fiction, which was sort of shocking to me and which I discovered when a friend of mine who was on my thesis committee, this was my MFA thesis at UMass, um, in, a, in a creative writing program I attended, uh, Jed Berry, a, a speculative fiction writer who's a little bit younger than me, said, Andrea, I'm really impressed by the historical accuracy and, and, and you know, the, the the detail is so important in historical fiction. And I was like, Jed, this this isn't historical fiction. So it was a little bit of a blow uh, to to sort of realize that. But then it became a constraint. And so as I was continuing to to revise the book and work on the book, I I realized that it was of critical importance to me to stay um, true to what was possible for Paul to think or say or know in the period of time that the book takes place. And the present of the book is sort of 1993 to 1995. So um, the language reflects that historical location. And and, and so that, that was one of the things that... Um, that became a sort of guiding principle for me. Yeah, um, maybe you'd like to uh, to read a section of um, of the book to you know sure. uh, get us more into the the themes and the the storyline. Absolutely, I'm actually going to read a section that is from towards the end of the book, but it takes place before the book starts, so there will be no spoilers. Um, and this is a a section in which Paul is remembering his, um, his earlier years. And it is also an homage to the, the queer writer Joe Brainerd, who's, who created the form I remember. Joe Brainerd was not only a writer, but also a visual artist, and actually primarily a visual artist who just hung out with a lot of poets. And he would write these um, I remembers on his studio walls, and then his poet friends would come over and say, you're a writer. And they would copy them down, and they made a book of them, which is how he's known now. But he, there are a number of, of sections of the book which are homages or pastiche of queer writers who have been important to me, Joe Brainerd, John Retchie, other writers like that. So this um, this section not only gives a little bit of background of Paul's life, but also I think uh, gestures at one of the modes of writing in the book. Paul remembered staking out the cubbyhole with Tony Pinto because Madonna and Sandra Bernhard had once had a date there in 1987 or kissed or something. Paul remembered staying up late to watch Madonna and David Letterman, never daring to believe anything gay would happen on television. Paul remembered Hudson Street in the rain. Paul remembered the porn store on the corner, looking at vintage physique magazines of those long-gone men in leopard skins and posing jocks. Paul remembered Tony Pinto making muscles to distract the shopkeeper while Paul stuffed an old drummer down his pants. Paul remembered three packs of old gay porn mags, the good ones on the outside and the crappy third stuffed inside like a grab bag, the newsprint stories and letters signed a reader in San Diego, or horny midshipman. 
Paul remembered Blue Boy, Numbers, Honcho, Freshman. Paul remembered the case of the tape Tony Pinto made for him the second time they met, Tony's scratchy handwriting marking out the song titles, original artists in parentheses when the song was a cover. Who said gay men always had beautiful handwriting? Tony Pinto had spent his boyhood rolling six-sided dice and sketching L's, and it showed. Paul remembered bizarre love triangle and a little respect, and there's more to love than boy meets girl. Paul remembered the first Saturday of the month dances at Columbia, crashing the Ivy League, being early, walking around the block ten times, the Greek diner in Morningside Heights, cheap, bad coffee. Paul remembered coffee breath. Paul remembered C. Howard's violent mints. Paul remembered the night he met Tony Pinto, smoking on the steps of Earl Hall, trying to tell who belonged, Tony Pinto stretching his gumby arms in a terrible imitation of a voguer. Paul remembered lights up, finding his stashed coat. Paul remembered the meatpacking district, clubs which changed sex according to the night, click club Fridays, meat Saturdays, or Jackie 60, same cinder block walls painted black. Paul remembered 4 a.m. bagels with bright pink lox-flavored cream cheese at the bakery on the corner. Paul remembered the Christopher Street Pier at night, 14-year-old queers in tube tops and short shorts, cigarette cherries reflected in the oily water. Paul remembered saying how fast they grow up, and Tony Pinto shaking his head ruefully and saying, kids, what are you going to do? Paul remembered drinking at Max Fish with Tony's straight goth friends from Fordham, walking west for miles with Tony until they hit the water, sitting on a broken concrete pylon and kissing for hours, hands down each other's pants, even though Tony had a serious boyfriend of two months. Paul remembered the sunburn Tony got at Pride that year, how their older friends carried sunblock, Tony's wounded red-brown chest and back like a soldier wearing puka beads, some older lesbian with a crew cut and a squeeze tube of aloe vera, sitting in the shade on the steps of a church which was really a bar, far enough away from the fray, in the shade, laying Tony across his lap so he could think, Tony lay across my lap like a pieta, and Tony's serious boyfriend of two months rounding the corner laughing. Paul remembered giving Tony back. Paul remembered sharing grilled cheese sandwiches with Tony and that girl, what was her name, Glynis, yeah, Glynis with the gay mom, from the rap group for gay teens at the center. Three of them college kids, older and not from the city, maybe a little too old to be in a rap group, but officially still teens, still youth. Paul remembered the working group he joined because Tony Pinto was joining, meeting at an apartment of a much older gay man with a job and a leather couch and crudité in the living room while they made plans to die in the street. Paul remembered the aching hall of the center, those Monday night meetings in the belly of the whale, the incomprehensible reports from the treatment action group and the meeting's incomprehensible response, what Tony Pinto called the grown-ups fighting. Paul remembered carrying store-bought frozen soup to a man he didn't know, with Rena, somewhere in Gramercy. One of those high-rises that made him feel like he was in 1970s Poland, leaving the soup on the dusty kitchen island, feeding the man's tropical fish while Rena changed the sheets on his hospital bed. All the while, days of our lives continued as if nothing were different. Paul remembered the men lined up in green plastic chairs at the center, young men with canes and liver spots. Paul remembered the cheery rattle of day-of-the-week pillbox compartments. Paul remembered the smell of orange medicine soap, sulfur and sweet, the gash on his palm from a fruit salad can lid. How is it possible to get a fruit salad injury, wanting the sliced cherry? Glimmer of fear in the eyes of the receptionist at the center, who sent him to the free clinic, 
fear of his blood now contaminating the can. Paul remembered colored condoms. Paul remembered a condom stretching over him like a balloon animal and lubricated, Tony squeezing out two free packets of probe. Paul remembered Tony's pockets, his backpack always full of giveaways and liberated rolls of toilet paper from restaurant bathrooms, Tony stopping in the foyer of every bar to fill up, top of the cigarette machine, wherever they kept the bowl, Tony collecting condoms in all flavors and brands and colors like baseball cards, his shock and horror at the condoms stapled into the bin box page, straight acting, straight looking, WM seek same. Not because he didn't agree that self-hating homosexuals should f*** off and die, but because that exact condom was wasted and some proud and out queer might need it. Paul remembered flannel shirts with the sleeves cut off. Paul remembered Tony's black leather motorcycle jacket with its rectangular stickers bragging frequently femme and basically butch and safe sex stud in neon green, his black hair shagging over the collar like a Portuguese leaf garret. How is anything ever so smooth as Tony's just slightly too long hair? Paul remembered Tony's serious boyfriend of two months, then three, four, five. David, unsuitable David, the waspy Jewish guy who'd played lacrosse at Andover and loved John Cheever. Older but recognizable to Paul. His easy law school ways, his embarrassing obsession with any dark-skinned man. How he'd settled for Tony Pinto, who was not dark enough. How he'd cheated on Tony Pinto over and over again. How he'd once at a demo outside St. Patrick's run his index finger down Paul's chest, down to his navel dipping, then turning away from Paul, who was enraged, flattered, humiliated, and never mentioned it to Tony. Paul remembered asking his friend Jimmy how proud he felt to say his friend Jimmy about Jimmy Batelli, the kindest and most handsome man in ACT UP, an older man who preferred older men, and that he'd allowed himself to be befriended by Paul as a miracle. Paul remembered asking Jimmy Batelli where he'd been, why he'd missed some meeting, and Jimmy shrugging, oh, another memorial service, darling, you know. Jimmy turning away from Paul kindly, even in his despair. Paul's relief to be so young. His 19th year a talisman. The word containing the word teen itself protection from what those older guys, those memorial-wearing men in their 20s, 30s, 40s, what they were losing. Thank you. It's, um, it's a really beautiful extract, and it's really nice to um, hear you make that explicit link with the work of Joe Brainard, who, of course, was very much in my mind when I read that extract, um, the Brainard, uh, the Brainard piece I remember is one of those incredibly moving and very, very simple uh, ideas that makes you wonder why nobody thought of it before and makes you wish that you'd thought of it first. Um, so, I mean, in that extract, one of the things that interests me is you know, is the 1990s as a setting, as you as you said, introducing the book. You know, in the process of the fifteen years that you were you were working on this this novel, the nineties went from I think being a kind of long continuous present to being kind of recent past that we could we could kind of analyze and look at what's um, look at what's changed. So I wondered if you would maybe like to expand a bit on why why use the nineteen nineties as a setting and how you how you evoked it. Yeah, that's that's a question. You know, I think people often ask is why I chose the nineties, but I. I feel, and maybe you also feel this way as a writer, I don't feel like I chose the 90s as much as I was writing, as you say, about the sort of continuous present or recent past. And then that became, you know, it it became something that was a distant subject. And once I realized, as I said, once I sort of like accepted that as a constraint, what became interesting to me was 
thinking about ways that the 90s were speaking to what was happening in in terms of, you know, the sort of the gender revolution that has happened since then. Um, and it, it became a way to to imagine communicating with younger queer and trans people, you know, not to say, oh, we've already had all of these conversations, but to sort of say, like, you know, there were some conversations we were having 20, 30 years ago that have some relevance to today and it is, I think, so important, you know, for, for us as, as queer and trans people to be talking to people in different generations. So for me, it's really important to be reading about, you know, what it's like now for young queer and trans people in fiction and memoir, wherever, poetry. Um, but it's also really exciting to, to sort of say, like, these are the things that that might be a way for you to understand um, some of our shared history. Uh, there's a there's a way in which I, I'm sort of like a low key hoarder, so there's a way in which I I did sort of imagine the novel as a place to offload all of these cultural references, these memories. You know, I I had this fantasy that I was gonna you know put everything in the book and be able to get rid of all these old club flyers and zines and stuff like that. That has not borne out, um, but. The, there's there's a way in which um, I think sort of lost the track. I think there's a way in which we used to have a kind of public space in which we shared our histories. Like I learned so much about life from older queer people at bars and there's there's less of that now. I think. I mean, certainly there's less of it in my life, and part of that is just aging and where I'm where I'm at in my life. But I think part of that is also the ways in which public spaces are, you know, more gentrified or less accessible and um, are less intergenerational. And so I I think that kind of communication has been really important to me. What's sort of funny is that over the course of those, you know, 15 years, so much changed culturally, and things were changing so fast. The language was changing so fast. Um, people's understandings of gender have been changing so quickly and in such a really exciting and beautiful and wonderful way and I think liberating way that there also became for me a sort of a benefit to keeping it tightly focused on this span of time you know for instance before cell phones before uh, you know, before a lot of discourse about trans identity became more widely circulated in, in you know, certainly in my life, um, before, you know, widespread use of the Internet. And what that allowed me to do was sort of say, like, I can explore what was possible for, for Paul to think and know with his historical subjectivity, his location. Um, and I, I'm not having to, like update I'm a very slow writer so I'm not having to like update the book every couple of months with like new information I could just focus on as much as possible trying to sort of like neutrally document the past through fiction and at the same time you know in my life parallel sort of openings of understanding were happening and and you know for instance I've I've kept the pronoun he stable throughout the book. It's a close third uh, point of view, close to Paul's perspective. And I use he no matter what his 
what his embodiment is, which felt really important to me as I was writing it. And I was getting a lot of pushback primarily from cis straight writers in various writers workshops I was in. And I had a hard time articulating why it was so important to keep it. I can do that a little bit better now. But at the time, I was having a hard time sort of I just knew I had to keep it. And when I finished the book, I think I was able to say it's important to me to destabilize certain kinds of understandings. I hope by the end of the book, the pronoun he has is is less clear. I hope that it, it doesn't have a sort of sense of um, like, I hope you don't know what it means. That said, about five or six years ago, so, you know, like five or six years before I finished the book, well, timeline, um, I started using they, them pronouns as a way to communicate. You know, I think there had been a period where I thought she, her pronouns don't have to be so fixed. I can destabilize that in my life. And then the way language has changed Ultimately, I'm a descriptivist. I'm not a prescriptivist. I'm not a theorist. I'm not somebody who's going to try to... I, I'm trying to communicate, and I, I realized that I was really grateful to people for whom, you know, who've been fighting for they-them pronouns or fighting for different kinds of um, understandings of, of language. I was really grateful for the work they'd done because I was able to use they them pronouns I am able to use that as a way to communicate something that feels complex um but it felt it that it would have been completely anachronistic to do that in the book and so that was it's an interesting tension I think yeah I mean there's several things I want to pick up on there the first is is your point about physical spaces and yes I think it's true that as we get older for various reasons we as kind of queer or and or trans non-binary people have less of a need for them but um also it is true that huge amounts of these spaces have disappeared at the moment at the Whitechapel gallery there is an exhibition about queer spaces in london from 1980 to the present focusing on the fact that london has lost an awful lot of its nightclub spaces generally and its lgbt and queer spaces in particular um so that's sort of worth thinking about um and it's certainly true that the novel, your novel, um, you know, is set at a time where there is quite a lot of kind of quite pointedly gay and lesbian culture. Um, Paul is interested in queer studies and film theory, and that's the kind of intellectual world that he um, kind of dances on the fringes of. You know, there's pointed and often quite funny references to Roland Barthes and the lover's discourse to Foucault's discipline and punish I won't spoil the joke but there's a <laughs> there's a nice a nice gag uh, around Foucault's discipline and punish and the use of the word gag there is also a gag um, in, in more than one sense uh, and um, you know Paul exists in this kind of this this underground at the time of yeah like gay and lesbian bars S&M clubs um, Riot Girl uh, gigs uh, and the Michigan Women's Festival, which of course, you know, quite famously was a product of the sort of trans exclusionary second se uh, aspects of the second wave feminist movement. Um, and there's there's a very um, poignant scene in the book where Paul shifts shape to be at the Michigan Women's Festival and is terrified of kind of involuntarily shifting back um, in pursuit of a, a woman that um, that he's in love with. Um, something that's kind of happening 
uh, the years 1993 to 95, where the book is set, something that's happening very, very underground. And um, I don't think many people at all were aware of it at the time, unless you were following small um, queer and independent presses very closely, is that what I would call you know, the kind of early trans theorists, uh, people like Kate Bornstein, Leslie Feinberg and Sandy Stone, uh, all in North America, were starting to... Um, starting to question this lineage of um, in particular transsexual memoir um, there's a, a, a quite well-known uh, essay by Sandy Stone who was a transsexual well still is a uh, transsexual uh, kind of artist writer sound engineer uh, theorist very interested in digital culture and um, in 1987, Sandy Stone wrote an essay called The Empire Strikes Back, a post-transsexual manifesto. Um, this was a response to a, a quite well-known uh, text by the um, feminist writer Janice G. Raymond called The Transsexual Empire, The Making of the Modern She-Male, which was published in 1979 um, and is um, probably the best known, the most sustained and I'd say the most notorious um, anti-trans feminist text. Um, I've talked and written about this an awful lot in my time. I'm not going to go too far into Raymond. Stone's response is quite interesting, um, partly because Raymond's text was prompted by Stone working as a sound engineer at an all-women uh, collective called Olivia Records in the 70s. Um, Stone's essay is interesting because it opens not with Raymond, but with a critique of, sort of tropes in transsexual memoirs, and particularly in Conundrum, which was published in 1974 by the travel writer uh, Jan Morris, um, and it was for a very long time the most widely read transsexual memoir um, in the United Kingdom. And in fact, the fact that that was still the most widely read transsexual memoir into the late uh, noughties was one of the reasons why I wrote my Guardian series and my, my memoir, which was published a few years ago. Um, but Stone uh, criticised the way that writers like Jan Morris and like Lily Elba, who's um, kind of book Man into Woman published in the 1930s um, criticised the way writers like Elba and Morris um, sort of elided space between traditional ideas of male and female um, and wrote each of these adventurers passes directly from one pole of sexual experience to the other if there is any intervening space in the continuum of sexuality it is invisible mm. um, Stone also wrote about how in order to circumvent this this idea of passing that was imposed on transsexual people by the gender identity clinics that handled people's transitions in the post-war period, um, and in order to counter these sort of transphobic feminist stereotypes about transsexual women in particular, trans and non-binary writers would would do well to write more openly and honestly about their experiences and think of them think of themselves as genres, think of their bodies as these sort of these embodied texts and genres that could disrupt established genders and sexualities. Um, you know, Stone's writing has been incredibly important to me, and I think it has been to yeah. to you as well. And I mean, the the shape shifting um, nature of of Paul's character is, I think, a really interesting way to circumvent traditional transsexual narratives where you move from one gender identity to another. Um, it also, obviously. Um, links back to things like, well, most prominently, I guess, Virginia Woolf's Orlando, in which the central character does something quite similar and doesn't, you know, 
Wolf doesn't feel the need to justify it or explain it. Um, I wondered if you could maybe like elaborate a bit more on the influence of of, of that line of writing on on your work. Absolutely. Um, well, the last thing you talked about, Wolf's Orlando, I think you know was a really important text for me. I encountered it very early before I could probably really understand it, and um, I think what what I was most struck by and what really was most powerful for me is Wolf's entitlement to just not explain, as you say. You know, Orlando shifts in this way just once, but it's just it it's just presented as if this happens. And and that was something that was really exciting to me. Um it felt important to me to disrupt the idea of a trans narrative in that I felt um, it felt quite strongly that I didn't want to be writing a sort of anthemic trans novel. Um, you know, Paul, there are there are characters in the book who are trans. I don't think Paul. I think Paul is a character who is of interest to trans readers. Um, but what felt important to me was that you know there are I think sort of like there's no clear origin story or explanation for Paul's abilities. Um, and that felt like a way to intervene in this sort of teleological trans narrative that people are constantly asked to produce and f for understandable reasons. And, and I feel, you know, personally, like I have a really uh, textbook trans narrative that I can produce, you know, at the drop of a hat. Me too. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and there's a way in which I sort of feel like that's fine. And then I'd like to leave things a little bit more unclear or sort of one of the things that fiction allows you to do is, is um, be more messy and unreasonable. And, you know, I, I think, um, I think that, that writers like Sandy Stone and writers like Leslie Feinberg, certainly, and, God, of course, writers like Kate Bornstein, they've been heroes to me. Um, and one of the things that has been so important to me with those three writers in particular is their um, insistence on their own complexity and insistence on nuance and just refusal to explain or totalize. And I think it's just it feels so liberating to, to, you know, like one of the things I, when I read Stone Butch Blues, I think, you know, many people had this experience. I read the book and I thought, well, there I am, you know. Stone Butch Blues is, um, for listeners who may not know it, is uh, Leslie Feinberg's 1993 novel, yeah. which uh, I'd just like to talk a little bit about this Absolutely. because it's a text that really interests me. Um, it's a kind of work of autofiction. Um, the book uh, blurs um, memoir and fiction in really interesting ways. I'm basically preparing for Viver at this point because I think I'm going to be talking about this quite a lot with um, with regard to the way that the the book is subtitled the book title is Stone Butch Blues it's subtitled A Novel to kind of highlight the fact that it both is and isn't a novel and in fact I kind of borrowed this technique for trans a memoir a few years ago um, and it has this very stylized picture of Feinberg on the front a blurb that 
gives you the central character Jess Goldberg working out their gender identity. But within this wider context of sort of 60s kind of post-war, pre-Stonewall, uh, Boston, I think the book is set. Yeah. I think that's possibly right. Buffalo, New York. Buffalo, maybe, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but, but you know, a sort of a urban US environment. Um, and, you know, dealing with uh, police repression, being involved with trade union activity. I mean, Feinberg was a lifelong communist. Yeah. Uh, and that's a very important context for the for the book. And, you know, by having the central character have uh, what Jay Prosser calls a bad pseudonym, Jay Prosser's book on transsexual life narratives, writes about Feinberg very interestingly, Jess Goldberg being a kind of a bad pseudonym that, you know, simultaneously evokes Leslie Feinberg, but has some plausible deniability <laughs> yeah. and Feinberg gave several different interviews where they contradicted themselves sometimes sort of hinting this book is autobiographical sometimes saying no it's it's fictional talking about the way autobiography obliges the author to strip or be stripped and how particularly difficult that had been for trans and non-binary authors over the years um yeah, I think that's that's what I wanted to say about um, about Stonebridge Blues. But yeah, I think again for both of us, it's been a very very influential text. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you know, yeah, one of the things that was so pleasurable about that book at the time, I mean, the pleasure of recognition, but also the pleasure of uh, you know lineage, and the pleasure of sort of having whether or not the book is autobiographical, Feinberg lived through the years that you know written about in that book and i think um having that that sense of you know we were always here is is thrilling and and continues to be and it's one of the reasons i'm really excited about your collection <laughs> mm-hmm. um and and i think is is one of the things that you know queer and trans historical fiction can do for us is write us into these kind of larger histories um I mean, I think that that fiction can can do a lot of things that other genres can't do, um, and I'll, and <laughs> and offers alibis. Yeah, I'd like to. Uh, we'll go into a more general discussion of fiction in a moment, but um, you know, at this point, this seems like a good moment to bring up uh, your um, relationship. Uh, with Geordie Rosenberg, author of uh, Confessions of the Fox, which has recently been published uh, here by Penguin and Random House. It's one of the first uh, works of fiction by a openly kind of trans-identified author to be published with a mainstream publisher. And obviously your book has crossed over from a small publisher, Rescue Press, to a, a larger one, um, Vintage and, and Picador. Um, Confessions of the Fox, which I've just started reading, uh, reimagines the 18th century English thief, jailbreaker and folk hero Jack Shepard as a trans man um, and is written by an academic who has, or from the position of an academic who has rediscovered a autobiographical uh, or a biographical manuscript and is kind of annotating it and you, you get a sense of obviously both Jack Shepard's life as this kind of proto-trans man at a time when that identity didn't exist uh, but also this academic you know writing from a trans perspective um you know reading reading this text in a certain way because one of the things i've been trying to do with my historical fiction is deal with the fact that postmodern approaches to history don't permit you to impose identities onto people who preceded them so you know that has made writing a, a, a kind of a trans and non-binary history 
quite difficult for us. Um, you know, there's lots of contestation now over who comes under that umbrella and whether or not people want to. Uh, but obviously it becomes much harder if you're going back even 30 or 40 years, let alone 100 or 200. Uh, and fiction allows some interesting ways to experiment with that, play with it, try and work around it. Um, I wonder if you'd like to maybe talk a bit more about the differences between your novel being set in the 90s and Rosenberg's novel being set in the 18th century um, and maybe the sort of different approaches you've taken. Absolutely. You know, well, one of the things that's so interesting is, you know, Jordi is an 18th century scholar. And so his interest in the book, and he speaks about this, you know, in interviews more widely, um, you know, more interestingly than I, I can. But the way he got interested in Jack Shepard was in doing research for, um, I think, you know, his, his academic writing and finding the ways in which Jack Shepard had been consistently referred to um, in contemporary accounts as, um, you know, sort of feminized. Um, and, and I think that that impulse, it's interesting, you know, thinking about revisionist history on some level or revisionist historical fiction. Um, it's interesting that it, it like we're dealing with um, questions about that now in terms of form and genre. In the 90s, I think there was a lot of uh, interest in in sort of revisionist history you know, from a sort of like a queer studies perspective um, sort of like looking back in time and sort of saying like, oh, these people were queer, these people, you know, sort of finding historical figures, excavating queerness in, in history. Um, and so it feels like a similar conversation, but it, it like just sort of like spiraling back around with more, more information. Um, I think Jordy's approach is both incredibly scholarly like his his book is really erudite but also so playful like half of the book takes place in the footnotes which is a really fun uh really complex now you haven't finished it yet uh i'm only about 50 pages in oh my gosh no spoilers please no (laughs) no spoilers and i will also say that this is this is I mean, obviously, this is one of my favorite books of all time, but um, because my best friend wrote it, but also because of the ending, which I will not spoil for you. But one of the things that I think um, Jordi is able to do by having a contemporary academic who has a story that unfolds in the footnotes, reading the purported manuscript of, of the prison break artist Jack Shepard, I and annotating it is that we get to have two ways of thinking about transness, two moments in history. Um, and they're sort of like informing and undoing each other in a way that I think also is resisting like a simple trans narrative. And I think also the, the humor in the book to me is, has that chaotic, um, effect of undoing that I think is really it is really important and it's something that is maybe more possible in fiction than in other forms so 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I want to take the conversation conversation now. Um, you're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM. This is Suite 212. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Juliet Jakes, and I'm with Andrea Lawler discussing their debut novel, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl, recently uh, published in this country by Picador, and issues around transgender and non-binary writing and literature more widely. Um, so, I mentioned at the top of the show, Time Magazine's uh, very famous article entitled The Transgender Tipping Point, published in May 2014. Uh, this was commissioned and published in response to Time Magazine, uh, writing an article about, you know, sort of 100 important people that didn't include any trans people at a time when we were starting to break into the mainstream media a lot more. And at the time, the one of the most prominent um out trans people was Laverne Cox from the series Orange is the New Black who featured on the cover under this headline The Transgender Tipping Point and the subheading America's Next Civil Rights Frontier. Uh, this tipping point was characterised within this sort of rather liberal narrative of history of this kind of gradually unfolding progress and it's become depressingly clear to me I think that over the last five years this tipping point has actually in many ways tipped back. Mm. Um, Laverne Cox and Janet Mock at the time were doing, I think, a very good job on mainstream media of trans advocacy, both, of course, trans women of colour, uh, both very plugged into activist discourses and were very good at conveying points from these discourses to mass audiences. Uh, they both got rather eclipsed by Caitlyn Jenner, um, who came out as transsexual, I think, the following year uh, and then featured on the cover of Vanity Fair in June 2015. Uh, what we've seen in this country, I think, is a big kickback against trans people and non-binary people finding their voices on social media and in mainstream media that began around about this time, really. It really uh, started to find its energy in 2014. Um, in this country, consultations around changes to the Gender Recognition Act provoked a wave of very transphobic editorial positions taken by centrist publications in which trans people were regularly accused of stifling debate about our existences and this debate often took place over our heads um you know this culminated in a guardian editorial that claimed to recognize both sides of what the um trans writer and activist jules joanne gleason called a toxic debate in which trans women and cis women are pitted directly against each other but drew primarily on the framing and talking points presented by anti-transgender uh, extremes and its media representatives. Uh, incredibly, this got a response from the Guardian's US team, um, who called the editorial misplaced and misguided and representative of an alarming intolerance of trans viewpoints in mainstream UK discourse. Um, you know, the Guardian US were particularly concerned because in, in America, uh, Trump's government was attempting to ban trans people from serving in the military, and it was considering creating a narrow definition of gender as being only male or female and unchangeable once determined at birth. Obviously, this has, um, you know, on the issue of bodily autonomy, it has kind of overlapped with uh, attempts to overthrow uh, Roe versus Wade and with Alabama and other places uh, outlawing abortion recently. Um, and in it is also tied in with a, a wider kickback against uh, contemporary forms of feminism and LGBT and Q 
rights and, and politics. So in Hungary, we've seen Viktor Orban ban gender studies from Hungarian universities. We've seen efforts to outlaw the very word gender from the Polish language. Attacks on LGBTQI communities led by uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, with Judith Butler in particular becoming a hate figure for her apparent influence on changes to gender roles, uh, as well as by uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, subject of a, a recent episode of Sweet 212. We've seen attempts to outlaw gay propaganda um, in practice LGBT uh, politics and movements in Kyrgyzstan following the example set in Russia in 2013 and trans people in the global south suffering from ongoing poverty, violence and murder. Um, so, you know, the five years since this tipping point have in many ways not been very encouraging, but at the same time, you know, we might have gone back underground compared to where we were, I think, five or six years ago. Um, but all sorts of thinking and writing and organising and reorganising is still taking place. I mean, you know, that that is much harder for these political um, movements to break. You know, they can't get rid of us entirely. Um, another thing that emerged in 2014 was uh, Transgender Studies Quarterly, um, co-founded by the uh, academic historian filmmaker Susan Stryker, um, who's work I'm, I'm a big fan of. Um, Stryker also co-edited um, two volumes of the Transgender Studies Reader in 2006 and 2013, and both of those volumes, I think, uh, are essential reading. Um, and I find it interesting that at this point, we can look back over a corpus of, of transgender studies. Um, indeed, TSQ recently published a really a very uh, interesting and provocative interview with uh, Andrea Long Chu and Emmett Drager, um, where they talked about how perhaps there's a need for transgender studies to not import so many paradigms directly from queer studies and find a way of engaging uh, more directly with, with trans experiences uh, and find some new directions. But it strikes me that um, fiction can, can form an interesting new way for us you know you can characterize i think a first wave of trans writing as memoir and autobiography that lasts from the 1930s through to the late 1980s uh, after sandy stone's essay that we've already discussed i think in the 90s 2000s early 2010s uh, particularly in north america there's a big focus on theory um, and i feel that you know in this decade with your work with rosenberg's hopefully with mine depending on uh, what happens with it um, and a number of others uh, we can talk about a wave of of more creative trans and non-binary writing fiction and poetry. Um, indeed, the Paris Review published an interesting article in October entitled Towards Creating a Trans Literary Canon, uh, which included uh, your your novel, uh, Geordie's novel, um, volumes of poetry um, by Cameron Awkward Rich, Ari Banias and Vivek Schreier, um, Akuake Amezi's novel Freshwater, essays by Ellie Clare, um, a book by uh, Juliana Huxtable, who's kind of like artist and writer and DJ, is kind of involved with music scenes. Uh, Juliana is, is very, very interesting. Um, as well as the emergence of Topside Press, which was set up to publish writing by uh, trans-identified authors like Imogen Binney and Casey Plett, um, and again, all of these all of these works, I think, have have drawn on these these discourses that emerged in the nineteen nineties. These zine cultures, things like Gender Trash from Hell by Santa Philippa and Merhas Soleil Ross, um, 
and many, many others. And you can draw a, an interesting distinction between them and then writers, earlier writers such as Jean Genet, Bridget Brophy, Gore Vidal, Severo Sardoy, all of whom were not openly trans, a lot of, a lot of whom were um, gay men um, who, you know, make some sort of gender play as kind of textual experiment or to make wider points about how gender and sexuality are constructed. And I've enjoyed all of those, all of those novels and I enjoyed Orlando as well. Um, but I do feel like this, this wave of, of trans fiction that's emerging now is, is quite different to, to that. Um, I wonder if you'd like to add anything on your experience of reading, reading people like, say, Casey Platt and Imogen Binney or, or other, other contemporary trans and non-binary writers. Absolutely. Um, well, Imogen Binney's Nevada was a huge touchstone for me. I mean, I read it, you know, I was halfway through the book, I guess, or the process of writing my book when I read it. But one of the things that I just so appreciate about Nevada is is the, the sort of, um, to me, it, it was very recognizable literary realism story about, you know, trans lives queer lives in this way that addressed issues of class, that was complex, that was funny, um, and that was just, that is just squarely under the sign of fiction. And it was, it was thrilling. I mean, the first, I think one of the first books I, I read that might, Tennessee Jones's uh, collection of short stories, Deliver Me From Nowhere, is one of the first literary realist books um, that I remember reading by a trans writer. And um, Carter Sickles, The Evening Hour as well. Those are both um, uh, U.S. trans uh, masculine literary realist fiction writers. Um, but they were less specifically about trans lives, whereas Binny's Nevada felt like this is life as I know it, like that thrill of recognition. Also, having been a bookseller, I really appreciated the um, the the scenes, you know, at her job, uh, Maria, as a as a bookseller. Um, and Casey Platt's book, uh, her collection, a safe girl to love, was, is a is a wonderful short story collection. And then I was really excited to read Little Fish, which also is just a, a beautifully crafted literary realist novel. Uh, in many ways, a coming of age novel. Although I think the the protagonist is like in, maybe in her thirties or something like that, but it's also very much about you know her crap job and um, and just and her her sort of like relationship with her father and just daily life in this way. And so those books are not coming out books, and that is also thrilling to me to have like beautiful literary realist writing that is that are not coming out stories. But one of the other things, as someone who maybe particularly loves science fiction and speculative fiction, um, that I've been really excited about is that so much of a contemporary you know, flowering, I'd, I'd say, of, of trans and non-binary fiction. Um, and I say flowering because I think like, you know, the books that are coming out right now, have the flowering has deep roots. So it's not like a new thing. It's just there's a, a new attention. But writers like Kai Cheng Tom, who is a Canadian writer um, who wrote a really smart, beautiful novel called uh, Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars, a trans girl's confabulous memoir. It's, it, it, it's called memoir, but it is a novel. There are mermaids. It, it's absolutely 
got a fabulous bent to it. Um, Freshwater, as you mentioned, River Solomons, um, uh, and Kindness of Ghosts, which is um, more of a space opera. Um, a really beautiful literary science fiction novel that is is you know that has trans non-binary intersex characters that is really complex but that is you know largely concerned with the legacies of the transatlantic slave trade but imagined extrapolated into space um those kinds of possibilities that we have now in 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 fiction and Jordy's book too you know Jordy is also like one of our immediate and earliest bonds was as you know love of science fiction so i think seeing this kind of this kind of more literary fabulism coming from trans and non-binary writers and intersex writers and writers who are sort of like you know wanting to use myth and fairy tale and science fiction and non-realism to get at something that feels true, it feels like we're, you know, we're just, there's something liberatory about being able to tell stories that are, that are not easily accessible or digestible or um, that don't have a, a message. Yeah, and that feels sort of more possible now that we have a corpus of more realist writing yeah. and of theory and of memoir. Um, I feel like this opens up more possibilities for, yeah, more speculative work, more genre work, uh, more avant-garde and strange work. I mean, in Britain, it's interesting talking talking to you as a North American writer because, um, you know, a lot of the... A lot of the North American writing has been influential on British writers. But, you know, you're seeing actually here a particularly interesting poetry and performance circuit uh, open up. So you've got people like kind of Ros Caveney writing more neoclassical verse. I mean, Ros also wrote uh, one of the few British kind of trans novels, uh, Tiny Pieces of Skull, which was originally written in the late 80s, but only published in 2015. Uh, more avant-garde poets like Nat Rahar, Verity Spock, Casper Heinemann, and the recent winner of the Ted Hughes Award, Jay Bernard. And, um, you know, there's an interesting performance art scene here, and Travis Alabanza is emerging as a as a leading light of that. Um, you know, there's relatively little fiction at the moment because we're, I think, a lot of trans trans writers here are focusing on... Um, on either uh, theory and particularly kind of dealing with the way the media treats trans people in this country. Um, I'm thinking of someone like C.N. Lester, their book Trans Like Me, which came out through Virago a couple of years ago. Um, the Trans Britain historical volume that Christine Burns edited that came out last year. Um, E.J. gonzalez Palado's Transitioning Matter, Gender Thought, which I've not had a chance to read yet. Um, but I, I do feel like the possibilities for for trans fiction are are opening up. It's interesting that some of the contestation over historical identity that we've been talking about is spreading into the fictional realm. Um, in the US, uh, an author called E.J. Levy, Levy um, forthcoming novel The Cape Doctor is about the Irish surgeon James Barry, who was assigned female at birth, lived as a man until he died in 1865. Um, Levy uses female pronouns to describe Barry, despite clear evidence that he used male ones, and asked not to be undressed before death to avoid his identity being uh, posthumously discredited. So... Um, so, so I do feel like historical fiction, in particular, is is going to become become another battleground uh, for us with regards to um, 
you know, writers from from varying different political perspectives that have traditionally been antagonistic to to trans and, and non-binary movements. Yeah, I mean that that uh, E.J. Levy novel. I, I'm particularly sort of disappointed, and I guess I I wish I could say I was surprised, but it's been you know really distressing to to find you know a, a contemporary fiction writer writing historical fiction so unwilling to actually look at the historical record it's very clear that Barry you know was a man identified as a man used he him pronouns it, it's just it feels incredibly disrespectful to double down on on using she her pronouns for for Barry throughout this novel it really yeah I don't know what else to say about that it's really sad I mean if I were to look for a positive in it, I feel it might generate an interesting counter-discourse. And as we've discussed over the course of this show, I think the roots of that counter-discourse exist. I think there is is you know, a very interesting uh, trans and non-binary literary culture that is starting to break into the mainstream and is starting to realise just how rich the um, possibilities for for fiction are. Um, so we've talked a little bit on the show today about my next project. Um, I wonder if you'd like to just uh, share anything about what you're doing next. Sure. Thank you. Um, well, I will say I'm, one of the things I'm doing next is hotly anticipating your book. Um, <laughs> but another thing that I'm, I'm very, I'm a very slow writer, but I'm very slowly working on a manuscript of prose poems that imagine a speculative near future seceded anarchist queer utopian western massachusetts which is where i live uh and it's a, it's sort of interesting it's a series of prose poems no characters a lot of world building um the uh the the pronoun throughout is we um which is it, it, that's been a interesting and fun project i started working on that series um as i was finishing the novel and it felt really exciting to um write small things that i could finish uh, as you can imagine it's a very commercial project and uh i have no idea what form it will finally take well i think i i speak for all of our listeners when i say that i'm looking forward to uh to finding out um that's all we've got time for this week uh thank you for listening to sweet 212 um i've been your host juliet jakes um Andrea's novel, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl, is out now through Picador, um, available from all good bookshops. Um, Andrea, thank you for, for joining me in the studio today. Um, thank you so much for having me. And um, please, uh, please tune in again, uh, same time, same place, next week here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Take care. Goodbye. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.